Welcome to Archonnect Sessions. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It'll help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. And for a limited time, all startup architectural firms that have been established within the last 24 months qualify for two free licenses of ArchiOffice online for one year. Go check it out at bqe.com forward slash startups. All right, for our second episode this season, we're super happy to be joined by a longtime friend of Archonnect's, Susan Surface. For those of you that have been around for a while, you may remember Susan's Archonnect School blog from Yale while she was a student there a few years ago. And prior to that, she was a regular contributor and part of the original Archonnect News crew. Hey, Susan. So great to have you on the show today. Hi, it's great to be back in the Archonnect fold. Very nice to have you. So uh, maybe you can fill us in on what you've been up to since graduating from Yale. Sure. So uh, after a brief run at Columbia University's C-Lab with Jeffrey Anaba and Benedict Coet, I moved to Seattle, where I'm now the program director at Design in Public. And uh, we are the organization that puts on the Seattle Design Festival. So basically what I do on a day-to-day basis for my job is organize this event as well as uh, the general public programming that we do year-round. And something exciting that's coming up is uh, together with American Institute of Architects. Seattle and the Seattle Architecture Foundation, we're actually opening a new center for architecture and design in January. So we are moving into a much larger space that will have exhibitions and more public programs and events and really, you know, moving this conversation about sort of architecture focused design, but I'm bringing in a more multidisciplinary side of that to uh, the city. So that's the update since I graduated. (laughs) So is it a regional organization that addresses issues of architecture within the city of Seattle or, or the state of Washington? Yes, it is very Seattle focused, although we certainly do engage in conversations that are more adjacent cities, regional, countryside. Uh, We kind of know each other pretty well between Vancouver to Portland. So those folks are always on our radar. So Susan, this is Donna. Can I ask a little more about the design center that you're opening? Or is this the beginning of a physical place for your the work that you're doing? Yes, it is. Can you tell us a little more about how maybe the public, you see the public interacting with that space? So that's really through the programming. We will have exhibitions going on year-round. Each of the three organizations will be taking turns sort of um, coming up with curating exhibitions or bringing them in from elsewhere and really shepherding those public gallery spaces while the rest of us all coordinate our programming roughly around the theme that's going on at the time. So in a way, Design in Public actually sets each yearly theme for or we'll set the overall yearly theme for all of the organizations. In 2016, it will be design change, which is obviously a very broad and open-ended theme, but we are really looking at questions of how design can change itself or how design can create change. Transformation, growth, good, bad, ugly, all of that. And so when we are in charge of the gallery and public programming spaces as the leader, we'll be curating the exhibition with or without a guest curator or group. And then uh, during times in AIA or Seattle Architecture Foundation are taking the lead on it, then we'll coordinate our programming to their specific topic. And then the public comes in just through all of the events and things. Seattle Architecture Foundation does a lot of the walking tours and youth activities. Design in Public does 
events for really a vast range of design professions, general publics and ages. So we could have anything from a hands-on workshop where children are making proposals for the Seattle waterfront to a symposium where city officials, developers and activists are all coming together to have a pretty high level conversation. So our program really varies. AIA's programming definitely tends to serve its membership and the profession of architecture specifically. So they'll have the classes, the events, um, that sort of thing. But the center really is meant to bring in a broad general public into the space. Can you talk a little bit about having lived in New York for a long time and um, then going to Yale and then moving? Seattle is now moving back home or back to where you came from. Can you talk a little bit about, and I don't want it to get too combative, but the sort of difference between the East Coast and the West Coast, you know, in a, in a nutshell, in terms of the design and the approach to design and how things are changing in the architecture communities? Sure. Well, some of the most obvious differences that I've noticed is the, I guess, the orientation to lifestyle where, you know, I'm I'm actually not from Seattle properly. I'm from Tacoma, Washington, which is a blue collar city that's about 30 miles south of Seattle. So Seattle is actually, although I spent a lot of time here, this is my first time living here as well. So I'm kind of new. On the East Coast, it's just, you know, very much more ruthless, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, you know, 110 hour work days and people emailing you and texting you at 10 p.m., not having any boundaries around personal time versus work time. And here, whereas I have an office that is an architecture organization where we are mostly women and genderqueer people who really respect each other's boundaries around that. So, you know, we if our weekends are weekends, our sick days are actual sick days and vacations are actual vacations. And my boss does a really bang up job of putting things like her children's soccer games into her work calendar so we know not to disturb her when she's with her family. And she, uh, Lisa Richmond, who's the executive director of both AIA and Design in Public, is a really fantastic role model that I'm super happy to be working with here. Another thing that I noticed that is different is that given the scale of Seattle, the city is really, and certainly there's, it's, you know, it's complicated, but the city does seem to really be trying to reach out to people who are very boots on the ground and who are engaged with the city itself. So in New York City, a lot of those people and positions seem fairly inaccessible to me. Whereas here I get messages from the mayor's office or the office of arts and culture saying, Hey, you know, we're really interested in working with you. So it's much more I guess they seem open to these kinds of conversations in a way that felt a bit more intimidating in New York City. Not that that really kept me out of trying to have them, but it just feels like you can sort of move things along on your own terms a little more easily out here somehow. Hi, Susan. This is Amelia. You mentioned before the context of your uh, your current workspace being a little bit more open to gender inclusivity and such. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kind of initiatives regarding that subject you've been involved with before, because we know a few instances in Arconnect where you've kind of spoken up about these things. And we wanted to have you on to talk about a recent news piece that had been posted that had to do with uh, gender inclusivity and in design. But I was just wondering, is there anything you're working on now that has to do with those issues? Part of how I approach that right now is really through creating the policies for how people participate in the Seattle Design Festival. And so that ranges, you know, gender is, is one of those things. But, you know, some of the things that we are really working to implement is, you know, get educating designers about this idea of nothing about us without us, which is a sort of old activist principle from Europe. But wait, can you say that again, Susan? What was that? 
Nothing. Nothing about us without us. It's a nice. slogan that you can search for and it means what it says. So, you know, for example, you know, we had a policy in the Seattle Design Festival where if you're going to be discussing a demographic group, then they need to be part of organizing how that conversation event will happen and they need to represent themselves. So, for example, you know, I think few people would, would have a conversation about real estate developers and what they're doing without having any developers there. That would be weird. So by the same token, if you are having a conversation on designing transitional housing or a shelter, you wouldn't ever think of convening that conversation, organizing a topic about it without people who have lived in spaces like that, either uh, as organizers or speaking on your panel discussion or your lecture or your film or whatever you have. So um, when people apply to participate in, in the festival, we look at their proposals and sort of inquire, you know, are, are you doing that? And if they aren't, then we ask them to revise or include people they need to be including. We have a sort of broad list of accessibility features that we really ask people to do their best to articulate. And sometimes articulating it means being very explicit about what you can and can't offer. Obviously, you know, some people are posting things in spaces they get for free where there might not be a chairlift or an elevator. And so, you know, just put in your directory listing their their stairs that you need to access. You know, we ask people to identify whether they have all gender or gendered restrooms in the space where they're offering their event. And if they have gendered restrooms, we ask them to convert them to all gender restrooms for the duration of their event. And if there's a reason they can't do that, then we ask them to have a restroom policy around gender self-determination. So, which would mean, you know, whatever people feel the restroom is that they should be using, they do that. And security or personnel um, staff would respect that person's decision if they were harassed in a restroom, which actually did come up during the festival um, at the Seattle Public Library, which does not offer all gender restrooms, but does have a policy of self-determination around gender. And so regarding the these specific policies, it seems like, because this is a, the subject of the article that we posted to the news recently and that we're trying to kind of grapple with here, is that a lot of the issues that surround the gender bathrooms kind of controversies or such have to do with individual policies where it won't be written into any specific code that allows the highest level of inclusivity. Instead, it's just kind of either up to the individual building owner to kind of decide how to, in terms of wording, represent whoever is allowed in whatever space. So I was wondering, based on your work in Seattle specifically, how do you imagine this issue? Is it like a policy issue or is it simply a political like openness issue and being able to work with specific building operators and owners in those spaces to kind of adopt these changes? That is going to depend from place to place. And that is actually something I learned at Yale as a student um, where I was you know, designing one of my sample theoretical buildings as you do in architecture school. And I designed it with um, all gender restrooms and all wheelchair accessible restrooms. And the code expert who was checking over our drawings, making sure that they seemed legit and we had our front doors and fire exits and all was like, oh, you know, which bathrooms are which? And I was like, well, they're all all gender restrooms. And he said, oh, well, you know, building code won't let you do that. So I was confused and said, oh, it's, why not? And they said, well, you know, if you're going to pass your building code inspection, you need to have male bathrooms and female bathrooms. And that was something I hadn't realized was actually embedded on that sort of level, where even if uh, a building, in that case, in the state of Connecticut, was perfectly willing to have all gender restrooms, they depending on how many toilets they had to the occupancy might not be allowed to make that choice for themselves on an official basis. Now, other than, you know, perhaps having a de facto policy, just verbally announcing it to one's tenants that sure, you can use any bathroom you want or putting up supplemental signage. It was sort of a matter of 
changing a sign on a bathroom. So Seattle actually did recently have a policy change where all single toilet restrooms are going to be required to be all gender. So you'll eliminate the silly problem of it's a room with one toilet. So who cares who's in there at the time? Um, you know, and then, and I've seen, I've seen different things in different places. For example, the PS1 Museum in Queens, New York has all gender restrooms that are multi-stall. And what they are is the stalls are built very floor to ceiling. So it's almost like each toilet is in its own fully walled room. They're not those tiny hider partitions. The sink is in a shared space and the queue is, uh, you know, whatever genders happen to need to use the toilet at that time. And I, I don't really know how that works out with New York City's building code. I'm not that familiar with it. And so some places might offer the freedom to let building owners truly make the decision. Some places might not. Well, if the partitions go all the way to the ceiling, would each stall be technically considered a separate bathroom? It might. And I don't remember if PS1, if they went all the way up to the ceiling, or if just they were very tall and sort of provided all kinds of visual noise barriers. Now they did go all the way to the floor. I do remember that. I mean, I think it really ultimately comes down to the building code officials interpretation, right? Susan, I think like you said, some places will let you sort of work around that. Just, I don't know if it's off the record or unofficially, they'll say, yes, we understand what you're trying to do here, or you can get a variance for that, obviously, a, like a code variance. But in terms of the international building code for, you know, buildings of a certain scale, they actually do have specific requirements about gender segregated restrooms. And that goes back to actually a previous sort of um, civil rights movement, I believe, starting around the 80s and 90s, around potty parity, when women were entering the workforce in greater numbers and would come into these facilities where there just weren't women's toilets at all. And so at that point, the conversation was women need a place to use the toilet. <laughs> and so they created requirements to have certain number of stalls and certain number of gendered stalls. And so now as we're coming to, uh, you know, this different understanding of how gender works and having more and more people, you know, really living their life in between spaces or transitioning genders or having all different kinds of array, it's clearly beyond male and female. And, you know, the conversation is different. And we're also starting to look at maybe sustainability and efficiency around, you know, that. And having lived with gender segregated restrooms for 20 years, you see how, you know, one restroom gets a really long line and one doesn't. One's tends to be cleaner and one's dirty. And do we need urinals? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> or Western toilets at all. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, in Minneapolis, Minneapolis has pretty much taken a lead here. The state has adopted the uh, 2012 IBC, but they've made their alterations to the IBC so that family toilets, which they're now calling them, are not gendered. Um, and Minneapolis has taken the lead in allowing businesses with single-user uh, toilets to be all gendered as well. Um, and I know in, in the state, there, the High school education has been grappling with how to provide accommodations for uh, trans students, and they've—I think—they've come on, uh, landed on the side of allowing, making that decision appropriately to allow trans students who are on, I think, athletic teams or even just in the schools to self-select which uh, locker rooms they would want to use. So I know, for instance, so I know in that regard, the code is at least in some circumstances, like uh, like uh, Susan's pointed out, the local jurisdictions are at least kind of helping guide people's decisions around how to manage this issue. Yeah, certainly people can modify the IBC when they. Beyond that, though, and I think this is kind of where we're going with this conversation. Is it, it seems beyond the code? How do we, aside from me, just you know, from 
and I even have tr- trouble saying because I'm I've never used this word before cisgender, and I'm not so comfortable with it because it seems like oh that's the that's something that I've learned only from listening to people or, or and that's how we learn, but it's not something that has come easy to me because I have not grown up with language in this area. But how do we help people understand what is really important here instead of dealing with these politicians? who are consistently making these broad assertions about things that are already illegal, for instance, assaulting women, and turning that into something which this issue is not really about. How do, how do we start making that conversation happen in a way that makes people comfortable having it? Well, I would say just just think about really basic things. Like, uh, you know, say you go to your friend's house and they have a toilet there. Like, is their toilet likely to be a men's toilet and a women's toilet? Probably <laughs> not. Like, we are all already using all gender toilets all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time, you know. We're all already sharing them with people of different ages. We're sharing them with children, adults, people with disabilities, just whoever. Like, we're all, you know, honey buckets have no gender and we all go for it at the music festival, right? So there's that. Like, it's actually not something that's foreign. And another thing that I like to think about is just humanity. Like, have you ever had a moment where you know, diarrhea has struck you or you really needed to pee (laughs) and you couldn't go to the bathroom and maybe you had an accident or it was really embarrassing. Or, um, you know, in my case, I was uh, bullied as as a young child by people who used to harass me in the bathroom, not because of my gender, but just I don't really know why. And so I used to just not drink water and got pretty ill. I used to not drink water and not eat food. So I wouldn't have to go to the bathroom when I was at school. So I can empathize with you know, people who might be trans or have, uh, you know, a non-binary gender presentation or, or not pass as cisgender who are terrified to go in the bathroom. Honestly, uh, I think far more people who are trans are assaulted in bathrooms by people defending those bathrooms than I, I don't think I've ever actually heard of a trans person assaulting someone random in the bathroom. And and another thing to remember is that, um, you know, signage doesn't protect us. If, if a if somebody wants to follow me into the bathroom and do something horrible to me, they will. Sign isn't going to change that. And and the whole argument of, oh, guys are just going to start putting on dresses and, you know, <laughs> going to the bathroom to leer at ladies. I mean, that that's not a transgender person. That's a guy putting on a dress to harass women. So, uh, you know, a lot of the things, like if you just logically think through them, are really debunked. And, and these aren't arguments that are new to me. I certainly would have to give credit to groups like Sylvia Rivera Law Project and Safe to Pee and, and a long lineage of activists who have made these points. And for me, it just uh, being very left-brained, it just seems so clear and obvious <laughs> that it's like, oh, yes, of course. You know, um, Why would I think that a picture of a stick figure in a skirt was going to stop some molester <laughs> from you know, banging me over the head with a pipe if I walk into the, the restroom? in the middle of the night. They won't, right? So, um, and also, you know, in my personal experience, like I've had uh, roommates who were trans and we lived together, shared restrooms. It was fine. Like nobody had any problems with that. The only problems are, you know, if you need to use the restroom and someone's there and you're like, why am I waiting 45 minutes for my shower? It has nothing to do with our gender. (laughs) It just has to do with, you know, being roommates. I was listening, uh, I was listening to Dan Savage yesterday and he made a great point, which I thought bared repeating since we were talking about this topic today. He said, it seems to, it's, it said, first he was telling people not to panic, that this too will pass. And he said that, but what's interesting is that states and courts have ways of crafting laws to correct the bad behavior of straight people. And these are behaviors either because he, because the the idea about keeping 
marriage to heterosexuals was because it was the intent was to keep the family unit together. And they thought that, you know, if we allowed gays and lesbians to marry, then it would give the heterosexuals less impetus to kind of keep that family unit together. So now you have this 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 crafting of this idiocy down in, in Houston around the bad behavior of generally straight men who attack or assault who, who or who molest children. And it's a behavior that, again, he said that these behaviors are committed by, by and large, straight people, and that th- these laws are crafted to correct those behaviors, which is, so he said, kind of just put this in perspective. Yeah, you'll win some, we'll lose some, but in general, the, the, the path is moving forward in the correct direction. I would also say that, like, in this particular context, there's many ways in which, as Ken, you referred to earlier, like the conversation just doesn't seem familiar to a lot of people. And that might keep people with highly rational and highly helpful opinions who otherwise might not be subjects of most of these conversations or like the kind of giant majority that aren't needing to be checked in with on these conversations might actually keep them out and and make them like less capable of contributing and being respectful members of that conversation. And so it, it does tie in as well to like knowing what respectful terms can be used in these types of conversations. And that plays into the whole like lexical importance and significance of this is that, yes, even though no one's going to be stopped moving into a bathroom to assault someone just because of a symbol on the door, that symbol on the door can still sway people into a certain idea of what is acceptable. And so that same way that we saw in this New York Times article that we've been posted, that we posted on the site to show that is as an alternative to the classic Victor Victoria kind of stick figures of gendered bathrooms, people are proposing new design icons for or symbols for what either whatever the term that that specific building is using for gender inclusive bathrooms, whether it's non-gendered or all genders or gender inclusive or male, female, and everyone else, I think was one in particular that was used uh, by a certain restaurant or something that is just a toilet. You know, it's just a new icon um, to represent these things. I do think that the all-gender restroom terminology is probably sort of a middle phase where eventually they will just be restrooms. And, you know, I I am a fan of signage that has a picture of whatever apparatus you will encounter in that space. So, you know, when we do the signage for the festival, if it's a room that has only toilets in it, we will have a picture of a toilet on the sign. And if they happen to be wheelchair accessible toilets and or there is a baby changing station, we will have that information also indicated on the sign. If it's a restroom that has uh, those things and also there are urinals in that room, then we will have a picture of a urinal on that sign. So people going in there, so straightforward. they will know what sort of fixtures they will see. Uh, They will know which ceramics they might confront in that space. (laughs) And they can make their decision accordingly. So Susan, can I just ask what brought you into this particular conversation around this level of design advocacy as an architect? Do you think there's a specific connection you have to it as an architect or is it just more of a personal issue? Well, uh, you know, sort of that moment where I understood that it really was a, a building code issue definitely made it architectural for me because it made me start to think about, you know, not only the logistics of why that would be and and maybe how to work for modifying some of those codes and modifying the designs of bathrooms, but also thinking about, you know, why is the bathroom a place where people are so anxious? And so this led to another body of research that I started in graduate school and then actually was fortunate enough to be able to pick up a little bit again at C-Lab around the idea of 
sort of things like pipes of any kind, be they telecommunications, electricity, sewage, and plumbing as, as places where the body meets the city or where the building meets the city. And the bathroom is, you know, where your, you know, the things you eat, like the agriculture that you're ingesting and putting for you is actually going into the city and returning to the polis and sort of mixing with other people. And I think that that, you know, the nakedness that we experience there, which is often hidden, especially when there's care for children or elders or folks that you might be in there with, the the gossip that happens between people who are maybe doing their makeup in the mirror, standing next to the urine or whatever, you know, there's a lot of moments of fraught, vulnerable interaction. And so I think that that is why the bathroom is sort of remaining as this bastion after education and the workplace and all these other spaces have become somewhat more integrated. And also, I think that we need to be aware of the fact that, you know, we we are a multicultural world and there are people who have very specific religious and cultural reasons for separating genders. And so I'm actually a fan of changing codes such that people are not required to have segregated restrooms, but that there is uh, opportunity for such facilities to exist when it's culturally appropriate. Because, you know, we wouldn't want to impose this sort of almost like a modernist sort of universal design upon places where it it doesn't really work for them. That's just colonization in a a different form. What about the issue of having a gender neutral option in addition to men's and women's restrooms? I mean, is that something that's being discussed? I mean, it's something that already happens, you know, with the, the family restrooms, often that is the accessible restroom. So yeah, it's it's not only being discussed, it's, it's currently kind of what a lot of places have, right? I love this this idea, Susan, about, about uh, making this conversation be a- about familiarizing people with the ways that this already exists in our society, right? That it, it sounds shocking, but if you look at it very carefully, yes, in fact, we do already. You go to a friend's house for a party and no one cares if it's a men's room or, a, you know, or not. Yeah, or, and, or and you know, and room. haven't we all been in that moment at the, you know, the theater when the line for the women's room is how long and there's nobody in line for the other one and someone's just right. like, I'm just going to go in there. And dudes don't really have the same flexibility if the situation were reversed. Um, but Like at an AIA convention, like uh, <laughs> Donna told us about a couple weeks ago. It's the one place, that AIA convention is the one place in my experience where the women's restroom is empty virtually and the man has a line out the door. Well, that says something, doesn't it? <laughs> we can refer back to episode one on that. The missing that 32%, whatever that <laughs> exactly, initiative is called. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So what's it going to take to to change this code? And, and do you have any idea how long this is going to um, take to change the kind of the cultural attitude and uh, building codes? There have been a few propositions, actually, to the International Building Code Council that happened this year. And that, that was something that I did was I have long thought of making such a, a proposal for a modification myself, but being relatively clueless about how one writes such a thing, didn't know. So anyway, I looked through all the proposals on the ICC's website and found five of them that pertained to changing the building code for various reasons. And one of them actually came from the Transgender Law Center who, you know, thought that that might be an interesting way to like address this without having to go the whole like protest and like public action sort of route. One of them came from an architect, I believe, at AIA somewhere in the Midwest. And that person was just interested in having more gender neutral restrooms for general, just more restrooms being available to more people, I think. There was a proposal from a a building facilities manager at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, who, uh, similarly to the Transgender Law Center, really heavily emphasized the 
sort of human rights and, and gender implications of making such a change, but also noted about uh, making it easier for facilities to be managed in certain ways, reducing costs of um, maintenance and such. And also noting that this was a change that likely would not cost uh, architects any extra for retrofit other than very minimal, you know, changing your sign. So I, I wrote emails to all of these people who had put in these proposals and said, hey, I saw that you all made similar proposals around increasing the number of gender neutral restrooms. And all of them went about different ways. Like some of them wanted all gender neutral restrooms. Some of them wanted to change single toilets, et cetera. And so they all wrote back um, and actually all of those proposals had been denied. And so we just sort of briefly started strategizing, you know, how it might be written. And, and my, my honest belief is that at least some of the reason they were denied was because of uh, they were not written in what the ICC considers enforceable language in terms of, uh, you know, code and, and law. Some of them were just much more sort of superfluous about, you know, about like theories. And really, they just want something that's like, how do you make the building? Very clean code. But then um, when you get the rejection, they published them all. And one of the comments was, uh, I think one of the adjudicators said, made a comment that was something like, I showed it to one female colleague who thought that this would be a bad idea. So no. And then one of the rejections of one of the proposals was, this is rejected, but take a look at one of the other proposals. It's better written. But then they rejected that one also. <laughs> so it was just kind of this uh, mysterious. But, but that said, they, they reject the vast majority of all code change proposals they get. On, on many different grounds, like some of them are due to language, some of them are due to, um, you know, it might be a manufacturer trying to sneak in some code where their product somehow becomes required for architects to use, which is really insidious. And so, and not that this, this has none of that, you know, like obviously there's um, no specific product required for this. But anyway, so um, I guess maybe my contribution to that conversation was getting all the folks who had, had done that work in touch with each other so they might be able to be more coordinated in the future. And also ended up speaking with someone who is on the LGBT commission here in Seattle at, at a different event I attended. And that person put me in touch with a transgender architect in Boston who has always had this dream of uh, changing these codes that, that architect's name is Maxwell Ang. And so got them in touch with them as, as well as another person in um, Tacoma who is the head of the YWCA who has recently implemented all gender facilities in the YWCA of Pierce County's buildings. So just sort of getting all these people who are very invested in this and including a licensed architect who might be able to help with some of the coding stuff. All talking. I don't know where that's going to go, but... <laughs> well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, because you, you can propose changes to ICC annually. So, yeah. Well, it seems like it's a big uh, kind of shift in the way people people's attitudes, which is going to take a little while, but it seems like things are moving in a good direction at a pretty steady pace these days relative to the last few decades. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it certainly is has you know just the fact that pretty much everybody at least knows that it's an issue versus ten years ago when I would be the one of very few people who are ever bringing it up and people just look at me like you want what like what is it huh aren't you scared and I was like no not not scared so it has you know certainly um, like transgender issues have become far more prominent in the sort of general discourse for many yeah. many reasons and I think people are starting to to be a little more empathetic to those to those issues because I think a lot of people have a really hard time understanding the difficulties that transgender people go through especially with issues of uh, going to the bathroom. And then, and you know so I think that this certainly you know started with that conversation but it, it's to me it's very linked to things like the you know the efforts 
towards what ended up becoming the ADI and the, you know, the ADA and the disability justice movements earlier on, where those are people who like literally physically could not get into the bathroom and, you know, created a movement, um, which is, you know, very, very politically and activist engaged and, and founded that radically changed the shape and materiality of buildings in a lot of ways and required far more extensive modifications and adjustments to the built environments. And so if you look at it, you know, the ADA was accomplished and that was far bigger in terms of changing everything from streets to sidewalks to the design of, of buildings of a certain scale. What, uh, neutral or all-gender restrooms are asking for is a far more modest proposition. It's something that just doesn't require as much modification, doesn't require as much investment financially, or, you know, you can, people are essentially already designing what they want. So you, you could make a bathroom that was all about being gender neutral. I'm sure someone has or will take that as a sort of theme in their project, but, um, you know, it doesn't need to be. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Susan, and talking about this. And it's just been great to catch up with you. Hopefully we can have you back on the show to talk about something else in the near future. I would love to. Maybe you can talk about other stuff. I'm sure that there's all kinds of stuff that you're an expert on. So we would love to have you back. Maybe opinionated would be my <laughs> my choice versus expert. I tend to shy away from expertise. <laughs> well, opinionated is at the top of the list when it comes to podcast and radio. So that's that's a good thing. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Susan. Take care. All right. Before we end this episode, I just wanted to remind our listeners that we have a brand new interview-only podcast titled Archonnect Sessions One-to-One. That podcast launched earlier this week, and you may have noticed it pop up on this podcast on Monday. But going forward, you're going to need to subscribe to the One-to-One podcast in order to get those updates delivered straight to your phone or your, or your computer. Just do a search on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. My favorite app for podcasts is Overcast, if you want to check that one out. And you can subscribe directly from there. You can also check the link in our show notes for the one-to-one episodes and click that for a direct link to subscribe to the one-to-one show. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcNextSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Talk to you next week.